This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. It's April, 1993. 80-year-old Lou Wasserman, as he has for half a century, reports to his office at MCA's headquarters not long after sunrise to start his workday. For the past 30 years, that office has been on the topmost floor of a 14-story black glass tower, the tallest building in the San Fernando Valley. This particular morning, despite his advanced years, it is still Wasserman's world. Thick carpets, antique furniture, and the reassuring hum of high-stakes work being done. An epicenter of discreet authority. All is as ever, until... Not far from Hollywood today, there was drama off the screen. At Universal City in Burbank, a sniper fired repeatedly through the windows of MCA's high-rise headquarters. Just after 10 a.m., on the top floors of the tower, shards of glass explode into offices. Several people are injured immediately by bullets and debris. Others, when they fall or collide as they race to safety. Nobody knows where the shooting is coming from, adding to the pandemonium. On the 14th floor, panicked executives and their assistants gather in the elevator landing, frantically banging the down buttons and hoping for rescue. And then Lou Wasserman appears. In the words of one witness, it's kind of a nice picture. He's tall, he's 80, and his hair is slicked back. He had on a dark suit. He was just standing there, imperiously. He was not cowed by this. Calmly, Wasserman walks toward his frightened employees and assures them that the shots are coming from outside the building, that the police are handling things, that they're all safe. And then he adds that they should maybe get back to their desks. As if to demonstrate how little there is to fear, he turns around and walks peacefully back to his office and nobody is the least bit surprised. Yes, there is something deeply ruthless in telling people to stick to their jobs during an active shooter situation, but Hollywood is a deeply ruthless game at this level, and that's thanks, largely, to guys like Lou Wasserman. Fifty years in the high-pressure world of show business, most of it at the top, and quite a bit of it dealing with heavy risks and shady characters, have inured Lou Wasserman to dangers that would cow people with lesser nerves. If anything can be reliably said about him, it's that a few random gunshots from a disgruntled ex-employee aren't going to get between him and his work. I'm Sean Levy. This is Glitter and Might, the Lou Wasserman story. In our first episode, we introduced you to Lou Wasserman, the most powerful movie mogul in history, at a time when he rescued his studio and Hollywood in general 
by overseeing JAWS and helping to create a business built on blockbusters. The rest of the industry followed Wasserman's lead because, yes, it was where the money was, but also because Hollywood had been watching and following Wasserman for decades. They knew that he knew, he always knew, what the next big thing would be. And they knew further that Wasserman's connections to political and underworld power ensured that whatever path he took would be a safe one for all of them to pursue. But just how did he accrue that power? The relationship between Hollywood and the mob is, you know, an intimate one. What went on in terms of Lou Wasserman and the mob, we will never fully know. Why do you not put anything on paper? It's both protecting yourself in the past and your strategy going forward. Wasserman was someone that was truly feared. You didn't cross him. You did not get in his way. A Hollywood movie is a bit like an iceberg. We can easily see the glittering top, the stars, the director, and if we're real film nerds, the cinematographer. Most of the creators, though, aren't visible to the naked eye. That is, the hundreds of workers, carpenters, electricians, truck drivers, and so forth, who make the movie. But there's a funny thing about the film business. Whether it's household name actors or anonymous recording engineers, ever since the 1930s or so, almost everybody working on a film set is represented by a labor union. And again, going back to the 30s, Almost every Hollywood labor union was, at least in its early years, secretly connected to organized crime. The mob organized crime has been a force in Hollywood almost since the advent of talking pictures. When actors like Edward G. Robinson and Paul Muni were playing gangsters in movies like Little Caesar and Scarface, the mob was already in Hollywood playing for real. Organized labor has long wielded enormous power in Hollywood since a strike by technicians or artisans can halt production of a film entirely. Here is Cynthia Littleton, co-editor-in-chief at Variety. Strikes are not good for anyone. People can lose homes, not pay kids college tuition. A strike is a failure of leadership on both sides. And I think Lou saw the bitterness of that. Most executives in Hollywood, especially at the higher levels, run as fast as they can away from anything called labor. Lou was the rare example of somebody who recognized the importance. The company that Wasserman ran, the Music Corporation of America, had been close with organized crime since its earliest days. MCA was founded in Chicago in the 1920s to book bands into nightclubs, meaning it had to work hand-in-hand -hand with the criminal organization of Al Capone, which operated most of the town's venues. A decade or so later, when MCA started gaining headway in Hollywood, its relationships with underworld figures continued to be powerful and useful. One man in particular, a lawyer by the name of Sidney Korshak, was critical to Wasserman's relationships with movie world unions. He's not a celebrity, and he's not the head of a major studio. But in the movie industry, many people say Sidney Korshak is perhaps the most powerful figure in Hollywood the man who makes a lot of things happen. Sidney Korshak was an attorney from Chicago who arrived in Los Angeles at around the same time that Wasserman did. Korshak never had a license to practice law in California, but he became one of the most powerful attorneys in the state, 
almost as powerful in Hollywood as Wasserman, in fact, and even more shadowy and discreet. The source of his authority? Well, in 1943, a Chicago gangster on trial in Los Angeles for corrupting a labor union testified that his bosses back east had anointed Korshak as their guy in Hollywood and Las Vegas. Pay attention to him, he'd been told. Any message he may deliver to you is a message from us. State and federal investigators say one reason Korshak is so powerful here is that he is one of the most important men in organized crime in the country. Korshak and Wasserman were extremely close. The two spoke almost every day for decades. They socialized together with their wives. They were seen as a team, and no one in Hollywood had the moxie to cross them. Of course, Korshak wasn't a gangster gangster. Like Wasserman, he was impeccably elegant and he spoke softly, which, to be fair, was all he needed to do. He had fearsome guys on speed dial. He didn't need to make threats. Sidney Korshak was this enigma, this man who rubbed shoulders with mobsters from Al Capone to the Giancanas and then political powerhouses like JFK and Jerry Brown. Oddly enough, he had these extraordinary blue chip clients from Hilton Hotels to Hyatt Hotels. Didn't matter if they were a conflict or not. And yet at the same time, he was the guy that probably knew where Jimmy Hoffa was buried. This is Barry Average director of the documentary film The Last Mogul, The Life and Times of Lou Wasserman. Everywhere you went, there was Sidney Korshak, the connector between the underworld and the overworld. A lawyer who did a lot of Lou's work in terms of dealing with the unions. He knew who to call, how to get things fixed for Lou. He was a man that had the illusion, not unlike Frank Sinatra to a certain degree, this illusion of being an organized crime figure that, you know, when he showed up to a meeting, you just caved and, and said yes to him because you were just afraid of who he was connected to. Sidney could call off any strike at any time in any industry, and particularly in Las Vegas. This is Peter Bart, a former executive at Paramount Pictures and later editor of Variety. That doesn't mean you'd ever ask him, you say, hey, Sidney, tell me about Jimmy Hoffa. I mean, you'd be stupid. Every once in a while, Sidney and I would have a meeting and I could see he wanted to use my phone because it was clean. The FBI wasn't listening. <laughs> so that was one of the understandings we had. And it was fascinating, based on Sidney's connections, that every other studio in Los Angeles and Hollywood, whether it was Paramount or Warner Brothers or MGM, uh, Fox, whoever it was, they all deferred to Lou. They let Lou and Sidney Korshak handle the dirty work, and cut the deals with the union. For Wasserman, having an association with underworld characters was a familiar aspect of doing business. In fact, he wasn't just willing to work with the mob. He had kind of married into it. Back in Cleveland in the mid-1930s, he met and wooed Edie Beckerman, a girl from the suburb of Shaker Heights. Edie was fun-loving with a wild side and a wild story. Her father, Henry Beckerman, was an attorney with ties to gangsters like Mo Dallitz. In Cleveland, you can decide to go the legitimate route and take an honest job or work for the mob-controlled nightclubs of the day. And Lou was immediately attracted to the fancy cars and the fancy suits and the people that are showing up. He saw a better side of life, even though it was an illegitimate world, and was immediately attracted to it. 
Yet despite Wasserman's open ties to Korshak, despite his daughter referring to Dalitz as Uncle Mo, and despite decades of MCA profiting from apparent relationships with gangsters, nothing more than rumors ever linked Wasserman and his company to organized crime. So how did the mob turn up doing business with MCA? What does MCA say about all this? The only thing they'd put on the record with us was a statement that included that they never knowingly participated in business ventures with members or associates of organized crime. There were some people, including some people at the U.S. Justice Department, who saw MCA as straight-up mob-connected, but they never could produce the receipts. Wasserman was discreet. I mean, Omerta was at least as true to the culture of MCA as it was to the mafia. This is Dennis McDougall, author of The Last Mogul, a biography of Lou Wasserman. You did not speak. You did not rat. You did not divulge anything. His famous line was, stay out of the spotlight, it fades your suit. He would say that. Agents, representatives, executives, we stay out of the spotlight. Put the talent, you know, Jimmy Stewart, Kim Novak, those are the stars, but we are behind the scenes. I was at a party and met Lou and told him that my aspiration was to make a film about him. And he shoved his thumb deep into my neck and warmly said, you won't make that film whether I'm alive or dead. All things being equal, Barry Average, who ultimately did make his film, got off easy. Among other things, Lou Wasserman was known for a volcanic temper, perhaps the only thing that truly made him resemble a gangster. On an immaculate desk that hardly ever had a piece of paper on it, Wasserman kept a dagger-shaped letter opener. His employees knew that if he started to fiddle with it, he was getting angry. If he proceeded to fuss with his Rolex watch, it meant he was furious. And if he took the watch off, you had better be prepared, because he was likely about to throw it at you. His tantrums, loud, profane, were legendary. There was an agent at MCA who everybody loved. Everybody in Hollywood loved and respected, and they thought he was so great, and they kept talking him up. And finally, Lou Wasserman called him in and fired him on the grounds that anybody that was that popular couldn't be doing his job right. This is Frank Rose, author of The Agency, a history of MCA's biggest rival, the William Morris Agency. He could be incredibly cold-blooded. He was a forbidding presence. He could leave grown men hugging the toilet. If Wasserman could terrify employees, he also made sure that they understood when he valued their work. Loyalty mattered just as much within MCA as in criminal circles, and it was well rewarded. When MCA made money, the people who created the wealth shared in it. And MCA made a lot of money. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hi, this is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking 
about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. By the end of World War II, MCA had come to completely dominate the agency business. Its talent roster included all the nation's biggest stars, directors, and musical acts. And it was constantly creating new ways to amass wealth and power. Wasserman had devised a way for actors to share in the profits of the films they starred in, a fiscal earthquake that would lead to the end of the traditional studio system. And he had identified an even more revolutionary means of making money that would produce profits beyond anything any talent agency had ever dreamed of. Yes, sir, if you want real entertainment, the best place to find it is in front of a television set. Sports, comedy, drama, news, music. Yes, they're all yours merely at the turn of a dial. Television was still in its infancy in the late 1940s, and the new medium scared the hell out of studio moguls, who saw it as a direct competitor for the public's entertainment time and dollars. They threatened to blackball actors who appeared on TV. Warner Brothers even banned prop TVs from the sets of their films. The other studios, they thought it was something that was a passing trend, but they also thought that if they ignored it, it would go away to their detriment. This is producer Brandon Millen. Lou was smart enough to realize that this is the future of content. He knows that the outlets are far greater in TV than they are in film. Wasserman owned one of the first TV sets in California, and he kept telling his MCA colleagues that the strange box with the fuzzy pictures was the future. He decided that MCA should get involved in television production, not only by representing the actors, directors, and writers who created TV shows, but by actually making TV content itself. Well, MCA had a head start because they had so much talent that they were able to fill a lot more content. As usual, Lou Wasserman spies an opportunity. He realizes that if he can set up a production company in Los Angeles, he can kind of leverage his various synergies and basically corner the market. But there's an impediment in the way. This is historian Rick Perlstein author of The Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon, and The Rise of Reagan. The Screen Actors Guild, SAG had a rule that talent agents could not produce programs, and that was because it was a conflict of interest. But Lou Wasserman, as ever, had an ace up his sleeve in the person of the president of SAG, his original Hollywood client, and a man who owed him a favor, Ronald Reagan. A decade earlier, Wasserman had negotiated Hollywood's first ever $1 million movie contract for none other than Reagan. News that Ronald Reagan, of all actors, was getting a million bucks drove plenty of truly major stars to seek MCA's services. Lou Wasserman had a definite outsized role in turning Ronald Reagan from a reliable B player in action-adventure serials that were made for almost no money to someone who was in the upper echelon of Hollywood by the time World War II started. And so, when Wasserman needed a waiver from SAG to produce TV shows featuring the actors it represented, he knew he could count on Reagan. 
Lou Wasserman operated in a way that naturally made people feel indebted to him, I think. He was someone who got deals for you, but he was smart enough to know that anytime you did a favor for someone, they were going to have to feel that they'd need to repay it. Sure enough, Reagan steered MCA's request for a waiver successfully through SAG's executive committee and a vote by the full membership. Ronald Reagan basically hands the keys to television production in Hollywood to this one producer over and above everyone else. For his help in granting MCA, and only MCA among all of Hollywood's talent agencies, the right to produce TV shows, Reagan got more than Lou Wasserman's gratitude. MCA's new TV slate included General Electric Theater, a weekly dramatic anthology series that required a host, actor, and pitchman to front it. Wasserman had just the guy for the gig. Yes, Ronald Reagan. Wasserman turned around to reward Reagan by getting him the deal with GE Theater. This is Mark Elliott, author of Reagan in Hollywood. He was not only starred in the show, but he became a spokesperson for GE. And he ran around the country with Nancy, promoting the show and also promoting better living through electricity. For General Electric, here is Ronald Reagan. Good evening. Tonight, George Sanders stars on the General Electric Theater. The GE deal was everything for Reagan. He's the host of this weekly television program that's on the air every Sunday night. And that means he's on America's television screens. And it's number one in the ratings quite frequently, beating Ed Sullivan. They built this state-of-the-art home for him. It was kind of the first kind of smart home with all the latest G gadgets. But inside that home, they would create these miniature five-minute vignettes of Ronald Reagan with this beautiful young family, his you know, toddler daughter, going about their daily life. This, of course, is our living room. Our lighting in here is rather interesting, too. Around the edges of the room, set in the ceiling, are rows of fluorescence. They bathe the walls in light, make the room more alive and cheerful. Reagan and his wife, Nancy, sold the audience not only on the wonders of an all-electric home, but on an idealized way of life, a high-tech, for its day, version of the American dream. One scholar has called that TV's first reality show. Now, if we think of Donald Trump as someone who sold himself to the electorate as the character created for him in The Apprentice, Ronald Reagan played a character, too, in the suburban protector with a perfect life. And when he enters his political career in the 1960s, when everything seems to be falling apart, I think it's that image that the voters have in mind. By the time the other agencies woke up to the fact that television was, as Wasserman had foreseen, the future, it was too late. Thanks to the SAG waiver, MCA had a stranglehold on TV production, And throughout the 1950s, it was raking in more than eight times as much in annual revenue as the next largest talent agency. There were a few competitors, but for the most part, whatever you saw on television in the 1950s came from MCA's review productions. So Lou was milking both sides of the cow and getting away with it. In modern terms, imagine if all the content on Netflix HBO, and Disney were created by a single production company, which also happened to be the agents for all the stars and principal creators of those shows. He was playing three-dimensional chess when other people were just trying to figure out what TV was going to mean to the film business. 
After a few years of dominating TV production, MCA was making fortunes weekly. But Lou Wasserman wasn't done increasing the company's wealth with power plays that nobody else in Hollywood could foresee or even comprehend. In 1958, he paid $50 million for the entire library of Paramount Pictures' pre-1948 films. The deal convinced a lot of Hollywood that he'd lost his mind. What would MCA do with more than 700 old films? Well, before the ink was dry on the paperwork, the company turned around and started leasing them out to TV stations across the country, creating profits that would eventually exceed $1 billion. That same year, Wasserman spent $11.25 million to buy Universal Pictures' 360-acre lot. Where others saw a plot of dirt and some decaying buildings, Wasserman saw valuable production space for film and television. And, inspired by the recent opening of Disneyland, he believed that a movie-related theme park closer to Los Angeles than the Magic Kingdom might just be a real moneymaker the most ambitious expansion in the movie capital in 30 years. At Universal City, Marlon Brando is flanked by executives Lou Wasserman and Jules Stein. The agency business, TV production, film licensing, and now a prospective theme park. All of this may have looked wonderful on MCA's profit and loss statements, but from another angle, it looked like the company was overreaching. MCA's near-monopoly on talent had been the subject of journalistic investigations and civil lawsuits in the past. Now the company was looking even bigger. Watching MCA expand, the U.S. Justice Department felt almost goaded into opening an investigation into the company for antitrust violations. In 1961, just weeks after assuming the office of Attorney General, Robert Kennedy authorized such a probe. Bobby Kennedy decided that he was going to go against organized crime in this country. And he saw in MCA a company that looked a lot like one of the five families in New York. He saw that it was wrong and decided he was going to go after it. People whispered to RFK about the monopoly, and RFK was looking for a headline and a mission, much like Elliot Ness would, and really went after. Lou in a major way. And yet, with full knowledge that this investigation was underway, Lou Wasserman carried on expanding MCA into even more unimaginable size. In 1962, little more than three years after acquiring the physical property of Universal Studios, MCA bought the studio itself. The talent agency was now also a full-on movie studio. And there was still more. Buying Universal meant that MCA also acquired Decca Records, one of the largest labels in the music industry, with such artists as Bing Crosby, Louis Armstrong, Billie Holiday, and Bobby Darin on its roster. MCA was now the single largest entity in Hollywood. Perhaps Wasserman thought that MCA could grow so big that it would be invulnerable to regulation by Washington. But his boldness struck the Justice Department as arrogance. Its investigators believed that MCA had been flagrantly cutting corners for too long, and with the force of law behind them, they were determined to find out just which corners were cut and by how much. It was a soap opera. It was definitely something that riveted the industry. There was coverage virtually every day. 
because so many things were in limbo, deals were put in limbo, other transactions, nobody knew what the tea leaves were going to be. The probe began to gain momentum in auditor's offices, in hearing rooms, and in a headline-grabbing grand jury investigation. Each day, a parade of famous faces was marched before the cameras and led behind closed doors. Paul Newman, Audrey Hepburn, Cary Grant, Lucille Ball, Alfred Hitchcock, and dozens more all appeared under oath to testify about their dealings with MCA, which they all swore were above board. In February 1962, one of the lower-profile witnesses, Ronald Reagan, spent several hours dodging questions about the exclusive waiver MCA had received from the Screen Actors Guild during his term as its president. But friendly testimony didn't change the basic fact. MCA was in hot water, and the government would be happy to make it even hotter. So here Lou Wasserman is, having built the largest and most powerful empire in Hollywood, only to find it besieged by the federal government. Just when it seems he should be basking in the glow of triumph, he's fighting for his company's life. He's forced to scheme as never before of ways to save MCA, and ways to ensure that the government will never interfere with his plans again. It's Sophia Franklin, and if you don't already know, listen up. My mini-series is live now, each and every Monday, and the only person missing is you. We're dating, we're dumping, we're learning, and we're tapping into all the feels that originally brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.